Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the podcast to get you thinking and rethinking the way we influence and impact the health of our nation. I'm Adam Hill, former physician and now chief executive of OnCommune. At this time, when a spotlight is being shone on our nation's health, I will be speaking with leading experts from across the healthcare and life science industry to discuss the opportunities and challenges they're facing as they work towards delivering scalable improvements in health outcomes. All my guests are leaders in their field and have interesting opinions and insights, and together we promise to provide you some inspiring, thought-provoking dialogue. I'm very pleased to introduce Professor Frank Sullivan. Frank is both a general practitioner and academic who has been driven throughout his career by his passion for medical research to improve the lives of his patients, and in particular, prolonging survival of those that are diagnosed with cancer. Frank grew up in Glasgow and completed his PhD there whilst working in general practice in some of the toughest parts of Scotland, caring for those often suffering with health issues associated with deprivation. Moving to Dundee, he became the chair of research and development in primary care at the university and developed the National Primary Care Research Network before being recruited for his unique expertise to establish the practice-based research network in Toronto, Canada as the Gordon F. Cheesborough Research Chair at North York General Hospital. Returning to Scotland to become Professor of Primary Care Medicine at the University of St Andrews, Frank is currently the University's Director of Research and a member of a number of panels, including the NCRI Lung Cancer Clinical Studies Group and the Scottish Chief Scientist Advisory Committee. Frank is a pioneer of healthy informatics research and community-based trials, exemplified by authoring in excess of 250 papers from his research, notably in early detection of diabetes, cancer, and Bell's palsy. But importantly, Frank is also the co-lead of the ECLS study, better known by those involved over the last seven years as ECHLS, which we will get onto in our chat. Frank, we're honored to have you with us and welcome. Delighted to be here, thank you. Frank, your, your career has been instrumental in driving much of our understanding today as clinicians of disease and its detection in the community, but it has not all been serendipitous, has it? Tell us about your early life, your, your upbringing, and, and what drew you into caring for those at the margins of our health systems provision. I, I guess, as you say, the being brought up in an area of deprivation means that you have a greater interest in the problems of that kind of community. So I was the oldest of five children brought up in a tenement in the east end of Glasgow, uh, which is uh, Scotland's most deprived uh, area. Uh, my mother was a, a homemaker and my father was a labourer working in a factory making whiskey bottles. So I think that's why I decided to become a general practitioner, but I had always wanted to be uh, working in more academic aspects of that. Uh, and it was a fairly underdeveloped field when I started in uh, 1983. Were you one of the first to go to university in your, your family? The first, yeah. The first and, and the, first, the first doctor within, within the family also? Yes, although once one person in the family becomes a doctor, as uh, some of the listeners may know, uh, many other younger people think, well, if they can do it, I can certainly do it. So it becomes a bit more of a tradition. <laughs> of course. So, so help us try and understand some of the challenges that... Um, that you face that are unique to the populations you've you've served um, in Scotland and 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 maybe also in in Canada. Well, I, I guess what the 
people in more deprived areas uh, experience is often similar to what um, everyone experiences uh, as their life goes on. They uh, develop illnesses and multiple illnesses and life becomes more difficult. And whereas in more affluent areas that might happen in their 70s and 80s, um, uh, for people in the more deprived areas, it can be happening in the 40s, 50s and, and 60s. So it's that increased burden of disease, which becomes intergenerational because people don't have their uh, older grandparents around. I, I never knew my, either of my grandmothers and only one of my grandfathers uh, very briefly. Uh, they had all died before I reached an age where I could uh, relate to them. Hmm. Mm. And and these these the communities that you've served, of course, um, uh, we've we've started to understand uh, are more susceptible to some of the diseases that you've taken a, an interest in, particularly um, cancer. What are, what are some of the drivers for that? Well, some of it may be genetic, um, but a lot of it is likely to be environmental. Um, and people living in poorer areas, the air quality is often poorer, both outside the air, but also internally uh, with uh, more uh, crowding of houses. There's more smoking. Uh, people use nicotine as a drug to mitigate the stresses and difficulties of their life. Uh, and that also applies, I think, to diet and exercise. Uh, people don't eat as well as they uh, would if they were in more affluent areas and they don't take as much exercise. And all of these mean that whenever people start to develop a cancer, uh, which they do with greater frequency with environmental influences, they're not able to fight it off as well. And then when they're diagnosed with, say, lung cancer, they often have other diseases, which mean that they're not so uh, able to benefit from the new treatments, the chemotherapy, radiotherapy and surgery, which is bringing a lot of potential benefit. Um, so they, they, they appear with advanced disease and more complex problems, and that makes it difficult to, to uh, get a good uh, management plan for them. I know, I know lung cancer is um, uh, uh, a disease that's very close to your, your own heart. Why, why is it that um, the rates in, in Scotland are so, so much higher than in the UK, and, and in fact, some of the highest globally? I think it is those environmental factors um, that uh, mean it's a, a major problem. For me personally, it was that my father died when I was 15, so I'd seen him very rapidly going uh, downhill um, over the, really the course of just one winter. And then when you're working as a GP every year, you will see people where that is replayed. Um, they uh, d develop symptoms, um, by the time the diagnosis is made, the disease is advanced, they don't get effective treatment uh, and they, they die. So the numbers in Scotland are that just over 5,000 people a year at the moment are developing lung cancer. And by the end of a year, more than 4,000 of them will be dead. And that's really just because of that late diagnosis. And that's why I was interested whenever the opportunity came to become involved uh, with early CDT as a way of getting to uh, earlier diagnosis, that uh, I thought we should put a lot of effort into getting involved in that. What's the specific challenge around 
diagnosing cancer early. I mean, I, I, many, many of our listeners might not appreciate um, quite some of those challenges when you first meet a patient um, in, in your general practice clinic um, who could have cancer. Are you able to help us understand those a little better? Okay, so, so GPs will deal with 40 to 50 patients every day. Perhaps around 10 of them will have symptoms that could be lung cancer, cough, sweating, fatigue, um, just all very common symptoms. Um, and if you were to investigate all 10 of those people um, every day, the NHS would be completely swamped. Well, every health system would be com completely swamped. So it means that people are treated for the most likely diagnosis without the benefit of full investigation. And almost always they'll get better. Uh, and the, the doctors who are seeing patients with early symptoms have to um, try very hard to keep a high index of suspicion that this might be lung cancer. Perhaps the person's been losing a bit of weight. Perhaps the, what they're coughing up is the odd fleck of blood in it and pick out those few that are more likely to be serious um, and they will become investigated. But even so... The commonest place that lung cancer is diagnosed in the UK at the moment is in the accident emergency department. People come late. The, by the time they've, they've got significant symptoms, uh, the disease is quite advanced and is often spread into their liver or bones. So there's a real need, isn't there, for um, being able to um, uh, pick up those patients, triage almost, those patients um, that have a high suspicion of uh, lung cancer into the appropriate next diagnostic step, which I think um, uh, provides um, the foundation from which, of course, you um, concocted with Sir Harry Burns the, the ECLS study, possibly the largest randomised trial of a blood biomarker for cancer detection in the world to report out today. Can, can you tell us a little bit about um, the background to, to the study, and then we can we can learn a little bit about the the study results themselves? Yeah, the, the background we've partly covered that there was the need, uh, but until um, the early CDT came along as an option, the only um, potentially effective um, way of detecting it was low-dose CT scanning. And that was showing some promise but it wasn't available in uh, Scotland and the, the rest of the UK. In fact, although it is recommended um, by the United States Preventive uh, Task Force, um, it still only reaches around 5% of the people who would be eligible uh, for uh, early detection through screening. So the fact that there was a blood test that might be promising uh, was, was uh, why we thought we should get involved. It was likely, we thought it had been through three earlier stages of development uh, of the blood test, which were the kind of preclinical exploratory studies. It had clinical assay validation. There had been retrospective studies looking back, comparing people with lung cancer and people without. But we were, thought that the next stage was really this uh, phase four prospective screening uh, where you needed to do a study uh, of the new test compared to standard treatment. And that would be a phase four study with a biomarker. 
So that was what was uh, designed, uh, as you say, involving several people um, back in 2013 when we um, were discussing it with Scottish Government and the charitable funders uh, who might be able to support such a, a study. Thing is, it was going to take a large number of patients. Uh, we thought it was going to take around 10,000 patients. And in fact, we recruited about over 12,000 patients. And what happened was that half of them had the blood test and half of them were just treated normally in the uh, standard NHS way, which is waiting to see if they developed symptoms. And we knew we needed those thousands of patients to be able to see if there was any difference between the, the two groups over the study period, which was set at two years. Um, the study was designed to detect a reduction in late stage presentation uh, of disease, because that's uh, really uh, what we, we need to, to find out. But we have to try and get the lung cancer detected uh, significantly earlier. And, 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 and so what did it show? Where, where did we get to? Well, what, what we found really was that there was a significant improvement in early diagnosis. Um, so in the people who um, had the, the, the blood test, 41% of those were detected early, whereas in the group who were uh, just treated normally, only 27% of them were detected early enough for curative treatment. And that, that was um, highly uh, significant. You basically reduce by a third the, the amount of late stage presentation uh, that there is with the current version of early CDT. And that means that all those people are then eligible for curative treatment. And we've seen that, that uh, dozens of the patients in the study have had the surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, uh, and they now no longer have lung cancer, the people who were in the intervention group. And so, so significant, um, I, I'm hearing, because um, more people in the arm that received the blood test as a diagnostic um, uh, tool, triaging into CT, um, were detected earlier than in the control arm that followed standard of care under under the NHS, what, what what does that mean in terms of um, that the the intervention arm population's survival um, or mortality um, compared to standard NHS care? Well, they would have a relatively normal survival after this had been uh, diagnosed, particularly if people stop smoking as a result, which we know more of them uh, did. So that instead of living for just one year, they may have another 10, 15, 20 years, uh, depending on the age that it's uh, picked up at and their other background uh, problems. So that, that's the significance for individuals and the impact that they can have on their, their families by being around uh, for longer. And the other impact really is, is on... Um, policymakers who are looking for being able to do something about this. Of course, we have cancer screening for a range of conditions at the moment, but we don't have one for lung cancer, which is the commonest cause of cancer deaths in the UK and many other advanced countries. And the other impact really is on researchers. It opens up another line 
of um, dealing with the potential problem where if we can take this on from this phase four study that we've done to the phase five large rollout type of study, um, then we'll be able to perhaps make quite a big difference, not just in the UK, but internationally. Now this has been published um, in the European Respiratory Journal. Um, what, what does that next step look like, this phase five study that you, you talk about? And, and, and when can we expect to see, see that being rolled out and, and indeed recruiting patients? Well, we're in discussion about the exact study design uh, with funders, Scottish Government, health boards and practices uh, in Scotland. And there's a number of English um, health boards, uh, health authorities who are interested in doing this uh, as well. So I would be hopeful that next year we'd be able to start, uh, again, a rigorous study, um, which would be able to demonstrate uh, that there was, was a potentially cost-effective way of uh, dealing with um, the problem as it, as it currently is. Um, so it would be what we would call a cluster randomised trial where we would have everybody in some practices would be given the blood test and a questionnaire to assess the risk and that would be compared with people just being sent a questionnaire which is the standard way of trying to assess whether somebody's eligible uh, to go into CT scanning. One of the um, unfortunate um, consequences of our, uh, the last four or five months of, of lockdown as we, as we try to control the, the effect of the COVID pandemic upon, um, upon vulnerable people um, in our community, of course, is that um, there have been fewer um, cancers detected during this time, and indeed those with cancer um, maybe have had treatment treatment options either curtailed or or restricted um do, do you think there is a role for what's been learned through the ecls study in in helping now um overcome the the excess burden of um, undiagnosed cancers that we're we're probably facing and having to deal with well the most obvious one is um enrolling people in the phase five study that i mentioned um, but that that will apply to a relatively limited number of people, tens of thousands. Whereas the other one, which seems obvious to me, is to make the existing investigation of suspected cancer uh, by taking into account the autoantibody status with early CDT. So people with lung nodules uh, could have this test done. And if the test is negative, it means it's significantly less likely that the person will have lung cancer. So they need less intensive workup than somebody who has a nodule and the antibody test is positive. That's a hypothesis at the moment, but I think that is one way that we could reduce the burden on radiology services and free them up for all the other diagnostic work, which as you say, is, is backing up at the moment while we're trying to cope with the pandemic. It's certainly a challenge and, and anything that um, we, we can do, I'm sure the health system is going to, going to welcome. Um, COVID and this, this period, of, period of lockdown also has brought with it, um, beyond the, the burden of undiagnosed cancers, and quite a, quite a bit of negative press. Um, you and I, I'm sure, have, have, have seen it on our screens and in our papers on a, 
on a daily basis. But but I certainly have come across a number of a number of positive things that are going on um, in 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 healthcare and um, the the health technology industry um, to support systems getting back up on their feet and um, and serving serving their their patients. Uh, what, what have you seen um, that we can be positive positive about and makes you optimistic about the future of healthcare? Yeah, well, I think we know that pandemics cause chaos and open minds. Uh, the health system was already facing a number of very major challenges, but their minds were relatively closed about how to deal with it. Uh, the most obvious one uh, is the change in telehealth uh, provision of health services, uh, whereby people don't have to uh, always go and uh, turn up at the health centre or hospital. Uh, so in the practice that I work in, they've moved to what's called triage first, that um, um, doctors can deal with 10, 12 uh, patients in an hour on the phone and only one or two of them have to come up later in the day to actually be examined and have blood tests, etc. So that's likely to be an efficiency. And then there's also just the reduced uh, travel, the impact on global warming from uh, reducing the carbon footprint through walking and cycling rather than travelling about to uh, not just medical appointments but other uh, things that people do. I think the other thing I've seen quite a lot of is um, support networks where uh, people uh, have started to volunteer more. Some of that is just quite local with existing groups starting to make um, masks or other personal protective equipment or medical students volunteering to deliver um, supplies to people who have been shielding and then I'm quite impressed just even last in a few days that government policy talking about um, uh, linking together health and social care in a much more meaningful way and doing something serious about diet and exercise, all of this could uh, really uh, have quite a, a positive impact that would have been difficult before the pandemic uh, brought the, the whole thing to the fore. It's certainly been heartening to see, and as you say, pandemics do have, do have a silver lining. Um, so finally, Frank, if, if you could pick three people to sit in your seat now and face my barrage of questions, um, who might they be and what questions might you ask them? The three I would, I would think of, I would start with asking really any of the widows and widowers of people who have been bereaved recently about lung cancer and asking them, what advice would you give to people who are at risk of lung cancer but being screened? And I think that would be quite telling about um, the loss to them and their family and the benefits of uh, detecting lung cancer earlier. The actual individual people that I, I, I picked out are two. Uh, Bob Steele, who's the chair of the UK Screening Committee, and Barack Obama, a famously guilt-ridden nicotine addict. <laughs> uh, to Bob, I would ask him, what data do the UK Screening Committee need to be able to recommend biomarker screening as an early step in uh, detection of, of lung cancer so that we could orientate the scientific effort towards providing that information that allows uh, policy decisions to be taken um, and, and everyone else like him in countries all over the world. But although they may decide, you would also need somebody like Barack Obama uh, who would be able to advise. I would ask him, how can we mobilise the financial and political resources 
be needed to deliver on the policy uh, if it was if it was decided, and in particular to get it delivered to the people who need it most, not the people who can afford to have the screening, but the people who need it most, who often find it most difficult to access these kind of resources. I think he'd be quite good at uh, bringing all this together. Whether we can get them or not is another matter. Well, Mr President and Professor Steele, your invite is in, in the post and to those that have lost loved ones, um, we will continue to work with you through um, our extra time outreach um, programmes at On Commune. Professor Sullivan, thank you very much for your time. Um, you have been a gentleman and uh, educated us um, in the need for early detection um, and principally um, the need to, to plug this gap in the management of patients with lung cancer. Many thanks. Thank you.